Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. May the Lord add his blessing as God brings us the word this morning. How's everybody this morning? It's good. Great. All right. Awesome. Um, before we open up God's Word, I'd like to invite His Holy Spirit, uh, so I'd invite you to pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Sabbath day, Lord. We thank you that you are a loving God that loves us so much that you created this special day, Lord. You carved this out in time, and you carved this out with a purpose for us to come together and to worship you, Lord. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit as we open up your word today, Lord. We invite your Holy Spirit to be the one speaking, Lord. Father, I pray that uh, the message that you've laid on my heart is your message and that these are your words, Lord. I simply want to be a mouthpiece to be used by you. I just want to be a tool in your tool belt, Lord, to relay your message to your children here today. So we pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray for a legion of angels to stand post around your house and your children here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So <clears throat> in our home church in Portsmouth, I got asked to write a sermon on Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, right? And it's like, wow, this is, a, this is huge. And um, what a message, you know, in this one sermon. And when I looked at it and I studied it, I said, you know, we really got to take this in full context, okay? Because, you know, the, the, the scripture that my brother just read is awesome. But we got to really fully understand it. We want to get a broad scope, broad understanding. We really need to take everything in context, right? Because Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 is part of a larger message. And although... Many things could be written on this one scripture, right? But again, we want to look at the whole context of it. Now, and in order to do that, we need to go back to Hebrews chapter 11, okay? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start out in Hebrews chapter 11 today. Now, we don't know for sure who the author of Hebrews is. Most scholars believe it was the Apostle Paul that wrote it. And we do know that all scripture is inspired by God, right? But punctuation and the breakup of chapters and verses is not inspired. That was added in later on, okay? So, assuming Paul wrote Hebrews, he didn't sit down and say, okay, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and write. He just wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write and it was just one long, continuous writing, okay? Apparently, the apostle did not have Miss Stora for an English teacher in middle school, 
I did. Miss Storer was my English teacher in seventh and eighth grade and my homeroom teacher, and she was a stickler on grammar and punctuation, and, and I'll tell you, I bet she went through gallons of red ink just correcting my homework. <laughs> you know, she was, she was a very nice lady, although I used to do the school announcements and then have to go to homeroom, and she would always correct me. I'd walk in and she'd say, Mr. Barrel, the word is pronounced meeting, not meeting. The drama club is not meeting at 3 o'clock today. They are meeting. I'd be like, yes, Ms. Storer, thank you. But I don't believe Ms. Storer was there to correct the apostles when they were writing. Um, and again, we know that the scriptures weren't written in English. They were actually written in Hebrew, Greek, with some Aramaic, right? And so my point is that these manuscripts, the, like I said, when the apostles wrote, they just wrote one long continuous thing, right? And as I said, the, the scriptures are inspired, but the punctuation was added in later. So let's go back into chapter 11, because when Paul was writing, if it was Paul, was writing Hebrews, what we now know as chapter 11 would have flowed right into chapter 12. So we're going to go back a little bit and get full context. Now, chapter 11... Because you guys are good Bible students, you guys know chapter 11 is the, is the hall of faith, right? It's a chapter about people of faith. Now, what made these people that are listed in chapter 11 so special? They were, they were known for their faith. They were remembered for their faith. But guess what? They were no different than you and me. These were men and women, no different than you and me living in their times, who put their faith in God. Right? Now, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about saying, you know, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was translated that he shouldn't see death. By faith, Noah built an ark and his family were saved. By faith, Abraham followed the Lord and obeyed him. And in verse 13, we're told that all these died without having seen the promise without having received the promise, I'm sorry, but saw it afar off. And the chapter goes on to tell us about Abraham offering his son, Isaac, on the mountain. It talks about heroes of faith, like Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. It talks about the walls of Jericho falling down by faith, falling flat, right? It talks about the faith of Rahab, the harlot that was saved. And then it says, there's just so many more stories, there's just too many to list. But that kind of gives us some context to go into where we're going. So we're going to start, if you have your Bibles open in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 39 and 40. So is everybody there? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40? Amen. And the Bible says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise... God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Okay, now we have some context to move into what we know today as Hebrews chapter 12. Right? And again, this was just one long continuous writing. Now that we've got some context, let's move forward. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 from Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand at the throne of God. Can you see how adding context kind of flows, everything flows right into it, right? Verse 1 puts us in the same category with these heroes of faith. It says, we also. So we're in addition to them, right? King James Version says, compassed about. Other versions might say, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? That's pretty good company to be in, don't you think? I think so. I mean, like I said, these were just average men and women who had above average faith. They had faith in God and they stood on it. And that's what they're remembered for. I don't know about you, but I would love to be remembered as a man of faith. The Bible tells us to lay everything aside and run this race. Now first, let me remind you, this race is a journey. It's not a sprint. It's not about who's the fastest, okay? And your race might look different than my race does. But I'm told to run the race that's set before me. I'm not to run your race for you, and you're not to run my race for me. And I know there's some well-meaning people who think that they're the race officials, that they're the umpires of the race, and that they're the ones sitting there who are going to tell you how to run your race. Friends, I'll run my race, you run your race. We're told to run the race that's set before us. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Okay, I'm not the author and finisher of your faith, and you're not mine. The author and finisher of our, of our faith is Jesus. So unless there's somebody else who can offer you a heaven or a hell, I suggest we stay focused on Christ. Right? And the Bible says in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given by men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said to follow him. He didn't say follow other people. I will tell you that in my life, the times I've gotten in the most trouble is probably when I've been following other people and not Christ, right? So I suggest we stay focused on Jesus. But this next thing really blows me away when I read this scripture. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? I can't fully imagine the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the cross. Again, I know you're great Bible students, right? So you understand that crucifixion was a very slow and painful death. Okay? The word excruciating literally means out of crucifying. Although not invented by the Romans, I think they probably perfected it. But history shows that there were other civilizations that used crucifixions as a form of death. Matter of fact, history shows that around 519 BC, Darius I, king of Persia, crucified 3,000 political opponents in Babylon. You know, we're in the middle of a political season right now, and we think politics is rough here. 
He crucified 3,000 opponents. That's rough. Yeah, we're getting there, aren't we? Yeah, we just, yeah, that's what we needed, more time for campaigning. Said no one ever. <laughs> but when I think about the crucifixion, something that strikes me is the humiliation. You know, when we see an artist's rendition of the crucifixion, of, say, Christ on the cross, we see a very modest version. We see a loincloth or something around the genitals. But that wasn't true. You see, when they crucified somebody, they crucified them naked because the humiliation was part of the punishment. The humiliation of hanging there naked was part of the punishment of crucifixion. So think about that for a minute. Our Lord hung on a cross completely naked. The king of the whole universe hung totally exposed on a cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross. Why? Why did he do that? Why was this joy enough for him? You know, you could easily say, well, he did it for you and he did it for me. And that's true. But why? Why did he do it? I will submit to you today <clears throat> that this was the crescendo, if you will, or the climax of God searching for man. <clears throat> I'll also submit to you today that the whole Bible is basically the story of God's search for man, for mankind, men and women. It's been said, I've heard before, that you can break down the Bible in basically three words. Creation, conflict, and cross. So first, creation. We know that God created the world. He created this perfect world out of love because he loves us. He created us, mankind, to live in this perfect environment because he loved us. Loves us. I shouldn't use past tense. <clears throat> he created everything, and the Bible says that everything was good. But then something went wrong, didn't it? That's where conflict comes in. Now there was conflict, and guess what? It didn't start in the Garden of Eden. You guys are Bible students. You know this conflict started in heaven. Isaiah 14.12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Did God create a devil? No. God created a beautiful angel. It's no different than Mrs. Hitler. Mrs. Hitler did not give birth to a murderous tyrant. Mrs. Hitler gave birth to a little baby boy who grew up and made the choice to become a murderous tyrant. God created a beautiful angel who made the choice to become a devil. Because, you see, the greatest gift in love is choice. God gives us the choice. God is love, and love must come from choice. It's not love if somebody's forced. And the Bible says that God is love. 
So that brings us to the cross. Because God is love, he died on the cross to save you and me. We all know that, right? Because God is love, he takes our place and what we deserve, and he offers us in place what he deserves. You see, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God came down and made a way out for them. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God said, here, let me help. And that way out went right through the cross. Another way you could break down the Bible, I just wrote this statement. These are my own words. It says, God created man in a perfect world. However, man chose to disobey God. And through man's disobedience, God never gave up on man and in fact created a way of escape from our own bad choices. He created a way for man to be reconciled to him and live forever. See, the entire Bible describes God's search for the redemption of mankind. God's looking for a people who will choose him. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to go to Genesis, for first book in the Bible, chapter 3. <clears throat> but again, to keep everything in context, let's think about verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2 for a moment. Okay? Chapters 1 and 2 basically describe creation. Describes God creating this perfect world and creating everything within the environment. And his crowning part of creation was when he created mankind. And then he rested on the seventh day and gave us the Sabbath. In the beginning of chapter 3, we see the fall. We see how Eve wandered away and was beguiled by the serpent. And she ate of the fruit. And then she gave the fruit to her husband and he made the choice to eat the fruit. I'm going to read, um, so what did God do? I'm going to read from verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the tree of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Where art thou? Where are you? He's asking that question today. Where are you? He's not asking you where you are physically. He's asking you, where are you spiritually? Where are you? Doug, where are you? Julie, where are you? Steve, where are you? Spiritually. Ask yourself that same question when you look in the mirror. Where am I? Are you spiritually in the presence of God? Or are you trying to hide? Are you spiritually with God? Or are you sowing fig leaves to cover yourself up? God is searching for you and he's searching for me. And that same God that called out to Adam in the Garden of Eden is calling you and me today. with that same question, where are you? So God's search for man started in the Garden of Eden. 
And again, I submit to you today that the entire Bible describes his search for the redemption of mankind. And that search climaxed on the cross. Our Savior sacrificed himself in this search. You know, the Bible begins in Genesis with God calling out to man saying, where are you? And it ends in the book of Revelation where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. He's still searching. He's standing at the door of your heart, knocking, saying, if you let me in, I'll abide with you. From Genesis to Revelation, it's God searching for man. That's an invitation. That's an invitation that I pray we all answer. Because you see, you and I are the joy that was set before him. When Christ considered the cross, he saw you. And he saw me. And he said, Father, it's worth it. I'll do it. They're worth it to me. God's search for man is because of his love. It's that love that allowed him to endure the cross. We are the joy that was set before him. 1 John 4.8 says that God is love. Notice what it says, God is love. It doesn't say God is loving. It doesn't say God gives love. God is lovable. It says God is love. And he gave us a chapter in the book that most of us refer to as the love chapter to tell us what love is and what love isn't. So again, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And an easy way to find 1 Corinthians is go to 2 Corinthians and go back one book. It works for me every time. It's always there. But I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians 13, but I'm going to make a little change if you'll allow me to. I'm going to paraphrase something in this chapter. <clears throat> Depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, it, talks, it uses the word charity or love. They're interchangeable. In the Greek, it, the word was, was agape. Okay? So whether it's love or charity, but I'm going to change that word to God. So where you see the word love or charity in your Bible, I'm going to replace it with God because God is love. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not God, I am become a, a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I could stand up here and babble on for hours. But if I don't have God, it's just noise. Right? And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not God, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burnt and have not God, it profiteth me nothing. 
Is it good to feed the poor? Of course it is. And there are plenty of people who have been martyred and had their bodies burnt. But if they don't have God, what was it worth? Verse 4, God suffereth long and is kind and envieth not. God vaunteth himself, vaunteth not himself and is not puffed up. God suffereth long. Friends, I'm living proof that God suffereth long. Okay? God is very patient. I'm living proof of that today. God doesn't envy. He doesn't walk around with his chest puffed up. He doesn't have to. Verse 5, God does not behave himself unseemly. Seeketh not his own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Evil cannot exist with God. Darkness cannot exist with the light. Verse 6, God rejoiceth not in inequity, but rejoiceth in the truth. What did Jesus say? I am the truth. Verse 7, God beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Verse 8, God never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. You know, we look at the news today and we, and we think, oh, this world is just going down the tubes. Things are so terrible right now in this world. And we think, oh, the enemy's got such a strong foothold on our children. The enemy's got such a strong foothold on us. Read the end of the book. God wins. God never fails. If you're on God's side, it doesn't matter how dark the battle might look. If you look, if you're on God's side, God wins the, the war. He's already won the war. God never fails. Verse 9, But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. You know, we talk about how short time is. And it is. And it's time, and I'll look myself in the mirror and say, it's time to grow up spiritually. It's time to mature more and more spiritually. Verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know even as I am known. Do you know you're going to see God face to face? Wow. Wow. And finally, verse 13, Now abideth faith, hope, God. These three, but the greatest of these, is God. Amen. I don't know if you've ever looked at chapter 13 like that before. It was introduced to me that way, and I said, Wow, that is, a, that is awesome. That's really telling me, because God is love. That's telling me really what love is and what God is and what he's not. Then the Bible says that God is, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And the right hand describes the place of authority, describes a place of power. John 5.22 says that all judgment is given to Jesus 
who's at the right hand of the Father. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is not only our advocate, he's our judge and our redeemer. You know, go, go back to verse 8 in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, God never fails. If God, if you have God, he's not going to lose your case. It's a guarantee. As I wind down, I do have an appeal today that I'd like you to prayerfully consider. I actually have two appeals for you to prayerfully consider. The first appeal is if there's somebody here today who's never surrendered your heart to Christ, I invite you to do that today. And if anybody's watching on the internet, on television, pray about if you've never surrendered your heart, I invite you to do that today. In the book of Acts, Paul is described talking to King Agrippa. And in this book, he's telling the king about Jesus, our risen Savior. He testifies about the prophecies. He tells them all about Christ. And King Agrippa answered the apostle and said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Almost. Now, I've heard it said that almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I've played horseshoes before. I'll have to take your word for it on hand grenades. But almost. Don't answer the Lord, but almost. You almost persuaded me, Lord, to be a Christian. You've never given your heart to Christ. Give it to him today. Don't say almost. My second appeal is to those of us who have surrendered our heart to Christ. And my appeal is, again, to resubmit your heart to Christ today. Paul says, I die daily. Each day we are to surrender to Christ. Every day is a new day. God is calling you too. Maybe you've been in the church many years. God is still calling you. And he's saying, where are you? Where are you spiritually? Surrender your life to him today. Don't say almost. Can you imagine how heartbreaking it would be to see Christ coming through the clouds and say, I almost became a Christian? Oh, Lord have mercy. No one wants to say almost when Jesus returns. Think about the joy that's set before us. <coughs> you know, we have to endure trials and tribulations, but think about the joy that's set before us. Christ in heaven with the Father. Don't answer with almost. If you'd like to answer any of these appeals in the affirmative, I invite you to say amen. Amen. Amen and hallelujah. Happy Sabbath. Closing him will be number 100. Shall we stand? Shall we sing?
we pray? <clears throat> Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for giving us faithfulness, Lord, for being a God that we can trust, being a God that loves us so much that you're searching for us, Lord. Father, let us answer that question. When you ask where we are, where are you? Let us answer that question, Lord, we're with you. We choose you above all, Lord. We choose you today, tomorrow, and forever. Please forgive us for any sins and, and inequities from our past, Lord. We claim the promise in 1 John 1, 9 that you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, we thank you for this worship service today, and we pray that it brought glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.